This week on Daiwa, we're in Calhoun County. A woman is murdered in her apartment while being robbed. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. Allie, we're in Calhoun County this week, which is where my mom is from. Have you been there? Aw, Jane. No, I have not been there. Well, you're missing out on a good time. <laughs> Any You'll have to facts? give me your, your hot spots. Oh, I for sure will. I've got a whole thing planned. Nice. Um, I can tell you that the county was originally named Fox County after a Native American tribe. However, the former vice president, John C. Calhoun, did not like the name Fox, so the Iowa legislature changed the name to Calhoun in 1853. And John Calhoun, kind of like a funny-looking guy. You should look up a picture. <laughs> I would not... He doesn't seem like an authority figure. That's what I'll say. No, and like a little pretentious to like get the county named after you just because you don't like the name Fox. <laughs> yeah, I agree. All around bad vibes. Yes, but Rockwell City is the county seat. And one person stood out to me while researching. That person was General Charles or Chuck Boyd. And General Boyd was originally from Rockwell City, Iowa. And he served in the Air Force from July 1960 to 1995. And so retired after 36 years of service. He was a combat pilot and flew in Southeast Asia in the Vietnam War, but he was shot down in his 105th mission and became a prisoner of war. He survived 2,488 days as a POW in Vietnam, so that's almost seven full years from 1966 to 1973. Crazy. Crazy. <laughs> Jinx. Oh, gosh. And during his captivity, Boyd was one of 52 Americans forced to participate in the Hanoi March, which was a propaganda event held by the North Vietnamese Army to showcase American prisoners to their civilians. And shortly after it began, the march turned into a riot where civilians would beat the American prisoners. And here's what General Boyd had to say about the Hanoi March. Very shortly, the parade got ugly. The organizers had obviously wanted to get the crowd riled up, angry, and even more committed to the war effort, but had no intention of turning the locals loose to maul and ultimately kill the prisoners. They probably thought one guard per prisoner was enough to hold the crowd at bay. As the evening wore on, it was not clear that the prisoner-guard ratio was enough. Eventually, General Boyd was rescued in 1973 as a part of Operation Homecoming, and he had a very successful career as he returned to America. General Boyd has 14 military awards, including an Air Force Cross and several Distinguished Service Medals. It's just a very cool guy. Yeah, totally agree. And also very scary that he was a prisoner of war for that like long. Like seven years. That's insane. I don't think I would survive. Ugh. Anyways, on a more lighthearted note, yes. I grew up going to Rockwell City to visit my grandma and so I, I'm so sorry. It has nothing to do with anyone <laughs> except for like the 5% of people that are my family. Love it. But here's some fun facts. So I was looking at some resources to see if I could find anything about my grandma or grandpa in newspapers. And I was quickly reminded that me and my grandma Margaret were <laughs> featured in the newspaper back in 2006 because we were doing a unit in elementary school PE class 
where we were learning like how to bowl properly and also how to score bowling like without the electronic scorer. Yeah. And they said that we could invite our grandparents. So my grandma traveled all the way from Rockwell City to join me at Waukee Elementary and we bowled together. And for whatever reason, a reporter came and interviewed me and my grandma. And so I think my mom still has that clip from the newspaper. Can we find it on newspapers.com? Yes, it is there. Isn't that I can't crazy? wait. Can't wait to look this up. <laughs> That's, I totally forgot it existed until I was looking at newspapers.com. Oh, it's like wild it. flashback. I also found uh, her and my grandpa's wedding announcement in a newspaper in 1942. And I didn't realize they had traveled to Missouri to get married. And I think after I talked to my mom about it, I think they also just stayed there for their honeymoon and then came back. So no one was invited to their wedding? It was just kind of like, were... And no, people were invited, but they, oh. everyone, it was like a destination wedding, but to, to Missouri. Missouri. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very fun. <laughs> and then uh, just some lasting inside jokes for the Felds out there listening. So yeah. Rockwell City is known for Duck Walls, which is the greatest store or hangout in history. Um, my grandma lived right across the street from a water tower, mm-hmm. which as kids we would hang out all the time. It's the best hangout spot ever. And uh, my grandma used to, she used to wake up really early and she would wake us all up by like rummaging silverware and like cooking bacon really loudly so we'd all like get up but she'd be like oh can't believe you're up but it's like her trying to wake people up so it's a very comforting feeling to have people make you breakfast and that's the way you wake up and finally i'm gonna end this segment with a fun little prayer that my grandma used to say before meals (laughs) thank you god for these delectable vittles may they add to your glory and not to our middles oh my gosh like the best person ever (laughs) very fun love it so you're saying rockwell city had some great people oh yeah everyone very friendly good county good city and great sense of humor for sure (laughs) well not grammar related but in 2003 this one question or answer on jeopardy is rockwell city in this state calls itself quote the golden buckle on the corn belt and finally to add to our list of wonderful slogans of towns and counties lake city also part of Calhoun County, has a sign that says, quote, everything but a lake. It's true. <laughs> Love it. So for this episode, we're in 1968. 1968 was a big year for civil rights. The Fair Housing Act passed as a part of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibited discrimination concerning the sale, rental, or financing of housing based on race, religion, national origin, and sex. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated on April 4th. Olympic gold and bronze medalists Tommy Smith and John Carlos raised their fists during the national anthem as a silent demonstration against racism. And back in Iowa, there were five major tornadoes as a part of a storm that spanned 10 states, which caused 18 deaths and over 600 injuries. And Ellen Aiden's family in Pomeroy just received some very bad news. So Ellen was born in Pomeroy, Iowa, and her parents were Tina and Henry Aiden. She graduated from Pomeroy High School and then graduated St. Luke's Hospital School as a registered nurse in Chicago. She stayed in Chicago and worked as a nurse, and her obituary stated that she, quote, gave of her time and talent to the needy. She spent much time and effort in the missions of Chicago and also gave support and help to alleviate misery in the life of orphans in Korea and elsewhere. She 
again was in Chicago, but she came back to Pomeroy pretty frequently to visit her parents. So on October 14, 1968, Ellen was in her Chicago apartment in the Lincoln Hotel building. In an attempt to rob her apartment, a man stormed in and shot Ellen one time in the head and twice in the chest. He took her purse, which was found days later, empty, on a different floor in the apartment building. Funeral services were held that week in Pomeroy, Iowa, and Ellen was buried in Union Cemetery. Authorities found out pretty quickly who they thought did this to Ellen. Rudolph Lucian, who was just 22 years old, told police he was a student at UCLA, and we found out pretty quickly that he was a troublemaker. On October 15th, Lucian got into a gun battle with police after attempting to steal credit cards at the Lake Tower Motel. He fired at least one shot at a guard for the motel. 35 credit cards were stolen in that burglary. Police eventually caught him, and he was charged with attempted murder, possession of stolen credit cards, possession of stolen license plates, and having an unregistered weapon. According to the Quad City Times, quote, Police said they found the credit cards in a room Lucian rented in the southwestern suburb of Oak Lawn. After he was arrested, police did a routine ballistics test on his gun and found that the pistol was linked to the fatal shooting of Ellen because the bullets matched those recovered from Ellen's body. So police obtained a murder warrant against Lucian. On October 30th, 1968, Lucian was charged with the murder of Ellen Aiden and was held without bond by Judge Daniel J. Ryan in felony court. On December 5th, 1968, the Chicago Tribune reported that, quote, the county grand jury voted a true bill yesterday, unquote, charging Rudolph Lucian with the October 14th murder of Ellen Aiden. Then, in January 1969, there's a surprising article in the Chicago Tribune that says Lucian was found innocent of Ellen's murder. According to the Tribune, the state's case was based on that ballistics test where the bullets from his gun matched the bullet that killed Ellen. It also said, quote, Lucian was found innocent after a brief bench trial before Judge L. Sheldon Brown of criminal court, unquote. So after all that, it seems like Ellen's case was ruled a homicide and no one was convicted of her murder. We're going to have to ask Taps about that one, but for now, let's keep following Lucian's story. Lucian was allegedly involved in three different robberies within a couple of years. The first one happened while Lucian was out on bond in March of 1969. It was reported in the Chicago Tribune that Lucian, quote, was arrested in his home early yesterday after eluding police Saturday. He was charged with the armed robbery of the cost flower shop. Lucian got away, though. Just like he was in a movie, he hopped onto a moving freight train. Police followed him onto the freight train, all, quote, hopping from rooftop to rooftop toward the suspect. The train was apparently traveling east at about 15 miles per hour. Then Lucian jumped. The policeman following him jumped too, but fell into a pile of railroad ties and badly injured himself. After seeing the policeman was injured, Lucian hopped back on the train and got away. However, Lucian's alleged partner in the robbery, Lamond Blanche, was arrested as he ran from the store. From an address book and photos found on Blanche, police identified Lucian and went to his home to arrest him. Lucian was found innocent of this crime after representing himself on trial. So the second robbery happened in September of 1969, where he robbed a card shop and was charged with armed robbery. During this trial, the owner of the card shop, Alvina Maziars, identified him as the robber. Lucian called three witnesses who testified that he was in New York City that week. Then, the owner of the bakery that he had robbed after this incident, but before this trial, was called to the stand and testified that Lucian was in her bakery shop four days prior. Again, Lucian represented himself, and the jury found him innocent of this crime. 
According to the Chicago Tribune, Judge Earl Strayhorn, who presided at the trial, said that Lucien's conduct was, quote, nothing but professional and his layman's knowledge of the law is extraordinary. And finally, in October of 1970, Lucien was actually punished for one of his crimes and was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison on the charges of attempted murder, aggravated battery, and armed robbery after he robbed a Lithuanian bakery where two women were wounded. According to the Chicago Tribune, Lucien was, quote, a correspondence law school student and has spent most of his waking hours in the county jail since he was arrested in New York City last May and was brought back here to stand trial for two robberies. The next time we hear about Lucien is in the Southern Illinoisan in November 1976. Side note, terrible paper name. Lucien was, <laughs> Lucien was charged with rape, unlawful restraint, aggravated assault, and unlawful use of weapons after he was accused of raping a hitchhiker he picked up on a highway south of Carmendale on October 21st. The charges alleged that Lucien picked up a female hitchhiker and forced her at gunpoint to accompany him to the Cedar Creek Lake area and raped her. At the time of this incident, he told people that he was a graduate student in the Administration of Justice program at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, but in reality, he was just a political science student. This happened while he was on parole from his earlier armed robbery convictions, where he had a 10 to 20 year sentence in Cook County. In April 1977, the Jackson County jury found Lucien innocent on charges of rape and unlawful restraint, but guilty of aggravated assault and unlawful use of a weapon, which are misdemeanors. The jury took six hours to deliberate. During the trial, Lucien testified two times and admitted giving the woman a ride, but said he drove her directly to Maconda, where she requested to go. He also denied any sexual attack on the woman. He was sentenced to one year in jail and a $1,000 fine. Because he was on parole during this crime, he was returned to the custody of the Illinois Department of Corrections for action under a parole violation order, and the Jackson County sentence would have become effective once the parole violation was cleared. So let's skip to 1979 now. In 1979, Lucien was charged and convicted of rape, armed robbery, intimidation, kidnapping, and armed violence. According to her testimony, a woman named Nancy said that on December 12, 1979, Lucien knocked on her apartment door and said he lived in a nearby apartment and was moving out, so he had some items for sale. She said she had never seen him before, but she went to his apartment and purchased a plant. Lucien came back to her apartment again later and said that she could have the rest of the unsold plants, so she went back to his apartment to pick them up. After she entered, he closed the door and grabbed her, throwing her to the floor. He told her to cooperate and not make any noise. She said she was pregnant and had a husband. Lucien then tied her hands and feet with neckties and put her in the bedroom closet, grabbing a knife. He then untied her and began removing his clothes, and when she tried to make a run for it, he beat her and then he raped her. Witnesses staying in an apartment below said they heard a scream and saw a bloody, unclothed girl land on the patio after jumping from the second floor balcony and ran across the parking lot. Nancy had some pretty extreme injuries, including nerve damage, abrasions, and clumps of loose hair. Semen was found in her as well. Lucien said during the trial that he and Nancy were in a sexual relationship for several weeks. 
He said she rode to Chicago with him and later that day came to his apartment and voluntarily engaged in sex with him. Voluntarily asked to be tied up in neckties after reading bondage magazines and only then told him that she was married and might be pregnant with his child. Lucien said that she became hysterical when she told him she was going to tell her husband about the affair, fell backwards, and hit her head. He said he believed she had arranged the whole incident because of the possibility she might give birth to a black baby, which she could only explain to her husband as conceived by rape. Two witnesses testified on behalf of Lucien. Lucien was then found guilty and sentenced to 60 years in prison. And it sounds like he didn't have a fun time in prison either. In 1982, Lucien filed a few lawsuits. One was full of requests for better prison accommodations, which mostly passed. He was able to get magazines in the prison, and some of the visitor rules were changed. However, he also sought release from prison under a, quote, writ of habeas corpus, according to the pantograph. This is a form of petition filed to seek the prompt release of someone in custody, claiming that his release date had been miscalculated. He claimed that multiple convictions in which more than one offense came from single physical acts, which is not allowed. So my interpretation of that is that he was charged multiple times for one crime. According to the original case text, quote, there were 19 duplicative offenses from the four basic charges of rape, armed robbery, aggravated kidnapping, and intimidation, unquote. The court agreed that two of the convictions could not stand in conjunction with one another. However, the rest of the opinion stated that while there were multiple offenses, each offense, quote, defines separate offenses and prohibit different kinds of conduct. In summary, this didn't actually change his sentence at all. In 1990, he was charged while in prison with having illegal contraband. A small amount of marijuana was allegedly found in Lucien's possession on April 9th when he was searched by two officers as he entered the West Cell House Protective Custody Unit. The officers testified that the back fell off a watch Lucien was wearing and two packets of marijuana fell to the ground. Lucien again testified in his own defense and denied possessing the marijuana. He said he was the victim of a conspiracy among prison officials. And again, this worked. He was found innocent of this charge. So then we hear from Lucien again in 2001 when Lucien asked for another, quote, habeas corpus order, arguing his extended term sentences were invalid under a newly formed apprendi. According to scotusblog.com, quote, in apprendi, the court ruled that the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial means that any fact that leads to a sentence longer than the maximum spelled out in law must be found to exist by the jury, applying the rigorous legal standard beyond a reasonable doubt. I'm going to have to check with TAPS to get the layman's explanation on that one. But the conclusion was that the Circuit Court of Will County appropriately recognized the applicability of Apprendi and its ruling holding the statute authorizing Lucien's extended term sentence unconstitutional and should be upheld. And that's the end of Lucien's story for now. We're unable to confirm where he currently is, but if anyone has any information about Ellen Aiden's case, please reach out to the Illinois State Police Department of Criminal Investigation. Well, definitely some questions for Taps, so let's give him a call. Sounds good. Hey, Taps, thanks for joining. Good evening. Hi, have you been to Calhoun County? I have. Anything interesting? Bloody FM presents... Hometown Ghost Stories. 
a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Um, I think there's a, isn't there a state minimum security in Rockwell City? Yeah, there's the women's. Yeah, maybe a women. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You went there? I didn't serve time there. Well, yeah, no. Yeah, no, I just know about it. Okay. I've been to Rock or Calhoun County. In my research, the Federal Bureau of Prisons came up. Is that located in Iowa? That's actually located in Washington, D.C. and runs all the federal prisons in the United States. Is there some sort of like chapter or office in Iowa? No, I don't believe there is any federal prison facility in Iowa. The closest ones are a minimum security in Vermilion, South Dakota, and the classification formerly military prison at Fort Leavenworth. See, this is why we fact check, because somehow that came up uh what does it mean when it says a county grand jury voted a true bill a true bill is a grand jury's indictment of someone and grand juries aren't used very often but when they are if they find a probable cause that someone committed a crime it's issued in a statement or a piece of paper called a true bill Mm. Okay. Okay. This is a hard one, but without knowing much about the trial, are you able to guess why Lucien would be found innocent in this case with Ellen? Uh, No, other than I don't think forensic standards were that great at that time. And so, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt is a pretty high threshold. And they probably weren't able to prove from the evidence they had that it was committed beyond a reasonable doubt. And what is the process if the family were to try to appeal this kind of ruling? The family can't appeal that kind of a ruling. Family doesn't ever have a a seat to do that. The prosecutor would have to. And the prosecutors cannot uh, appeal a fact find by a jury or a judge. Once the judge or jury says not guilty, that's, that's it. They get one bite at the apple. A family, a family can never try to appeal. I didn't know that. No, they're not part of the parties to the case. But they can't try and convince the prosecution to? Yeah, they could do that. But the okay. state, the crime is against the state. It's never against the family. That's why it says state of Iowa versus Smith or state of Iowa versus John. Got it. So the, if the family were upset with the ruling, they would just go back to the prosecution. Right. Okay. Just because this happened in Chicago, do you know of any major differences off the top of your head between Illinois law and Iowa law? No, I don't. But I mean, the standard, the evidentiary standards are pretty similar across all 50 states. Usually the crimes are similar, although they might be called something different. But usually murder cases, murder one, murder two, manslaughter are pretty consistent across all 50 states. So you don't think anything would have turned out differently if Ellen's case, if the trial happened in Iowa? No, because I just, I don't think there was enough evidence. 
Mm-hmm. I've got another definition question for you. <laughs> and I'm going to sound dumb when I say this. What is apprendi? Apprendi. Apprendi. <laughs> sure. I didn't know either. Sorry. <laughs> it comes from a case in New Jersey, apprendi. Okay. It says the Sixth Amendment requires that if a sentence is going to be more restrictive or stronger than is given in the law, it has to be done beyond a reasonable doubt by the jury, by the fact finder. Cool. Okay. So Lucien was on trial for a few different crimes before he was found guilty of one. So like if I were on a jury, hypothetically, and Lucien was the defendant, if I knew that he was on trial for other crimes in the past, it feels like I would think that he was guilty of a current crime. So you should never know that he has ever been accused of another crime. Okay. And there are very rare instances where that would be allowed into a trial. Can the prosecution um, bring that up? The prosecution cannot bring that up. The only One of the only ways, and there's a couple others, I'm sure, but one of the only ways is if the defendant himself would make a case about it. In other words, the defendant himself would say, I, I was never, ever arrested before, and he had been, then the prosecutor can talk about it. But unless the defendant brings it up, the prosecution cannot speak about his past criminal conduct. Okay, that makes sense. And how does it work when you're convicted of a different crime when you're on parole? Well, nothing, because usually the parole, the terms of the parole are, you will not be involved in illegal activity. They don't, there's not a crime, specific crime stated. It's just, you cannot be involved in illegal activity. It might also say you have to have a job, you have to live in a certain area, whatever the elements of parole are, the restrictions are. But then what happens if you break that parole and you are charged with a crime? So when you are on parole, you are still serving your sentence. You are still under the, the uh, jurisdiction of the Department of Corrections of whatever state you're in or the federal government. And so when you violate parole, it merely says, okay, they have a parole violation hearing. And if they prove uh, that the parole violation occurred, you just get brought back into prison to continue to serve your sentence. So parole is by sentencing by the Department of Corrections, whereas probation is a judicial sentence from the judge. Gotcha. Any thoughts on Lucian in general or this case? Well, I mean, he just looked like he was a habitual criminal. Um, And I'm kind of surprised that the Chicago area authorities have not gone down the DNA path or anything with him. I know it's an old, old case, but just to prove that it was him or not him, I would think if they had some forensic evidence from the body or the scene, they might be able to prove DNA. If it was tried and he was proven innocent, would they still do that? Yeah, just to get to an understanding of what happened. They cannot retry him. And obviously he's, I believe, deceased, but just to realize that that was the guy and then they closed the file. Because if it wasn't the guy, then there's somebody else out there. Mm, yeah. Anything else? Well, I mean, it's probably one of, what, thousands of cases in Cook County in Chicago that they could do this with. So they probably, I mean, you think about the manpower and the expenses. They probably just are saving their resources for more recent cases. Beth and I read a cool article, though, this week where it was people can start donating to DNA labs to start solving some of these cold cases. Um, uh, sure. I mean, if that's what you're going to spend your money on. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, 
it's expensive to do it. I know that. So it would take cash. All right. Well, thanks for joining. We'll talk to you next time. Good evening. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.